This is Words Matter. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Charlie Savage is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and a Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Charlie covers national security issues for The Times and is the author of Power Wars, The Relentless Rise of Presidential Power and Secrecy. Charlie Savage, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks for having me. I'm joined today by my co-host, Adam Levine. Great to be here, Katie. Charlie, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you. We're going to talk about your book in a little bit, but I wanted to start with something a little different. On August 1st, 1995, the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette, a story newspaper dating back to 1863 published a story entitled The Dark Side of the Rainbow. And here's what the story said. Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, the film version of The Wizard of Oz, two profoundly successful pieces of pop art you would think are completely unrelated. Yet there exists a connection, no, really a synchronicity, between the two that escapes logic or understanding. Now that article was said to be the first mainstream press account of this phenomenon that was called Dark Side of the Rainbow. The byline, Charles Savage. Is that your first byline? It was not my first byline, but it's the first one that anyone still remembers today, for sure. We talked a little bit before, and and you still get asked about it in situations like this almost 25 years later. That's true. So just for, for those listeners who aren't aware, what this is is a, is a reference to if you play the Pink Floyd album, Dark Side of the Moon, simultaneously starting at the right moment when the MGM lion is roaring with the Wizard of Oz with the movie's soundtrack muted. It's sort of like a 50-minute art film uh, music video in which not only do scenes change when songs are going to the next track or the movements seem to align in key points with what's happening on the screen. Uh, for example, the when the tornado comes, the wordless moan singing uh, uh, goes up and down. And then when she gets hit in the head and gets knocked out and it falls again, and then it's quiet when the house falls and, and the, the chords of money start the moment she opens the door to the Technicolor Munchieland. But there's also uh, a fairly rich amount of lyrical coincidences in which, for example, balanced on the biggest wave, she's balancing on the uh, the pig pen fence and, uh, you know, black and blue is right when the witch comes in in Munchkin Land and confronts her in her blue dress. And, wow. And in the very end of the album when she's listening, uh, the, the album's heartbeats are playing when she's listening to the empty chest of the Ten Woodsmen. But, you know, there's 30 examples like that. I have never heard of this. It's totally bizarre. And, uh, you that know, is. it's a cosmic coincidence. I didn't invent this. In the early days of the internet, there was something that was kind of like Reddit today called Usenet, which was a message board system. And someone on the and I, at the time I was a freshman in college, and the I liked Pink Floyd a lot, and had just seen them in concert, and uh, was on that board. And someone mentioned doing this, and I tried it with my dorm friends, and then went back to the Journal Gazette that summer for an internship on a what was supposed to be a Gen X lifestyles page, and pitched this to the editor and. We wrote about it, and then that would, turned out to be the first time in a sort of real publication anyone had recounted this phenomenon. So we got picked up by MTV News and various radio stations, and at some point someone stuck that into my Wikipedia page. 
And so flash forward to the year 2019 when I'm a very serious journalist <laughs> and I write about things that are heavy like surveillance and torture and indefinite detention and executive power and war and inevitably – as just happened, <laughs> the mood is lightened with this bizarre thing that I wrote about. A long we try time to ago. humanize everybody, Indeed. right? Yeah, no. That's so good. That, that seems to be it. Seems to be following me around through my life. It's not so bad to follow. I'm going to have to try this and experience it. I had not uh, heard about it before. All right. So quickly shifting then to the more serious topics. It's often said that journalists are the first drafters of history, and you have been in this business for over 15 years, and you've been doing a bit of drafting as uh, a reporter for national security in Donald Trump's Washington. How has your reporting changed in the last couple of years? So how is it different to cover the Trump administration than the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations? Another way of asking that question is, am I going to write a third book about Trump? Sure. That would be the, like the end of a trilogy after my Bush-Cheney book and then my Obama book. And <laughs> I like I that off. the reporter re- re-asked the question. That's good. That's- and, and I hesitate when people ask me that because it is so different. Uh, those two administrations, for all their differences, were full of lawyers who had particular visions of the Constitution and the rule of law and what could and could not be done. Their thinking about legal policy and the power of the presidency was, even though they're quite different from each other, the the Bush administration had a very expansive view of what the president could do uh, beyond the reach of law or ordinary law. And the Obama administration was trying to sort of roll that back to a mainstream understanding of checks and balances. But either way, it was a very serious, coherent, philosophical approach to establishing the parameters with of governing. So the two books go together well as sort of a change and then an attempt to change back, whereas the Trump administration does not exhibit that kind of internal discipline or even coherent attempt by lawyers to unleash the presidency. It's a, I think it's it's clearly a, a sort of capricious place where the ordinary decision-making process, whether it's about policy or law, has broken down. It's not clear that the – even in national security issues, for example, that the normal deputies committee, principal committee, national security committee process of developing thoughts where everyone ventilates their views and people who have – strong views or a lot of influence dominate the people who don't have it. You know, it's like instead people wake up and they look on Twitter and it turns out we're pulling out of Syria or trans people are being banned from the military or we're going to do X except we never do X. And, you know, it's not conducive to a story about governing government lawyers doing much more than just trying to sort of put Band-Aids over the cracks uh, of a very idiosyncratic presidency. You know, I know I know a lot of the lawyers that are inside this administration, just as I know a lot of the lawyers in the previous two administrations. But it's not entirely clear to me that they have much influence and are being consulted, and that their views about law and governance are having much influence one way or the other in what is happening day to day in Washington. Except insofar as the president may decide he wants to do something, and then they're asked to try to develop some kind of rationale that can get to the next day when they're asked to do something else, uh, some paperwork at least. So I want to ask about precisely that. Actually, you've written a number of times in your career on presidential power. um, And recently, we have talked more about emergency presidential powers. So I want to read the lead from your story um, on February 15th, 2019. 
President Trump on Friday pointed to nearly five dozen previous instances in which presidents of both parties have declared national emergencies as justification for his invocation of extraordinary powers to build his border wall. But there is no precedent for what he has just done. As the headline of that story notes, presidents have declared dozens of emergencies, but not like Trump's. Why is Trump's different? So Trump's is different because in all those, I think, 59 or 58, depending on how they're counted, previous instances since 1976, in which presidents have declared an emergency to activate a statute that allows them to do something they would not normally be allowed to do, absent a declared emergency, none of those look like what Trump just did in the following sense. None of them were the president going to Congress to ask for funding for a policy Congress weighing that request, debating that request, and deciding not to give the president as much as what he was asking for. And then the president saying, I will claim that an emergency exists that allows me to do that thing anyway. None of those were in runs around Congress thwarting the will of Congress. They were all instances in which, all the previous ones, in which the executive branch was doing what Congress wanted the executive branch to do when they created these statutes, allowing extra flexibility to the executive branch under certain circumstances. The overwhelming majority of them were about foreign policy and sanctioning various bad actors who the president determined had done something like involvement in terrorism or human rights abuses or transnational narcotics trafficking. And when the president determines those things, those conditions exist, he's allowed under a certain emergency power statute to place sanctions on the bad actor so that it's illegal for Americans to do business with them and their assets are frozen here. That's what Congress wants the executive branch to do. There were two of those instances were were places where money that Congress had appropriated for one purpose was redirected uh, to a different purpose. Uh, which is more akin to what Trump is doing now with the border wall. But they were both war situations where there was a fast-moving need to uh, build up a foreign base, one in the lead-up to the Persian Gulf War by the first George Bush and the other by the second George W. Bush uh, right after 9-11 when we were preparing to go into Afghanistan and needed to build up some basing in that part of the world. Again, not a place where the president had gone to Congress to say, I have a certain policy goal. Would you please fund it? And Congress had said, we're not going to give you all the money you wanted. And the president purports to find an emergency that lets him do it anyway. And that's why the, the claim that presidents do this all the time is superficially accurate but wildly misleading in that this is not what those statutes were envisioned by lawmakers to permit when they passed them. The problem being that they they wrote it in 1976 in, in such a, uh, ex, uh, I don't say sloppy way, but in, in such an, an open-ended way. They did not say, here's, you know, they left the president with President C with a lot of latitude uh, to determine an emergency exists. They didn't write in a standard that had to be met. Because you don't know what, you know, the whole purpose of these things is unforeseen circumstances. And until now, it has been a norm that presidents do not abuse that authority by using it as an in run around Congress. Uh, now, uh, that norm turns out to be uh, not a constraint. In general, though, <clears throat> you go back to 1976, obviously, um, very accurately and appropriately for this situation. But if you look back at that scope of presidential power that you've that you've talked about and you write about from obviously you mentioned war situations, Abraham Lincoln suspending the writ of habeas, habeas corpus, obviously during a war, but then actions like Harry Truman 
nationalizing the steel industry in um, 1952 or attempting to. Is Donald Trump really acting differently or does he just communicate it and is it more a substantive departure or is it just I don't have to explain myself so I'm not going to? Is it really different or is he just not good at communicating it and it's the style that puts people off? Well, so I think to think clearly about this, we have to break down what kind of – what would we mean when we say a president invokes emergency power? The two historical examples you just gave are not the same thing at all in that these were those were presidents claiming uh, they could do something just on their own. It's maybe a claim of inherent commander-in-chief power uh, that then met dubious fates. In the case of Lincoln and habeas corpus, Congress was not in session uh, when the Civil War was breaking out. He did that. And then when Congress returned to session, he wrote them a letter saying, I did some stuff that was probably not legal. I had to do it because you weren't here and the exigency required it. Would you please pass a law that retroactively blesses what I did, which Congress did do in, in 1861? And in uh, the case of Harry Truman and the steel seizure, that was uh, went to the Supreme Court when a steel mill owner sued to get his mill back. And the Supreme Court famously struck down what Truman had done and said, you can't do this, in part because Congress has not given you – Congress has not, given, not only not given you this authority, they've – created an alternative procedure for resolving labor disputes, and you can't just on your own ignore that and flout it. When we're talking about emergency power in the case of Trump, we're not talking about inherent claims of executive power. Um, we're talking about authority, that standby authority that Congress has created for the presidency to use in exigent circumstances as a matter of law. And so the dispute is, is this what Congress was thinking. Is this really an emergency? And in a more technical sense, do, does what Trump want to do here, which is have the military spend military money on a structure that would help a civilian agency police the border, uh, does that fit within the words of the statute? It, just optically, though, the thing that makes it different, again, is using something that Congress created for exigent circumstances as a way to get around what Congress has chosen not to do, which is to spend more money than it appropriated on this structure. Just out of curiosity, other than the steel seizure case, uh, we know that there have already been a couple of lawsuits challenging uh, Trump's assertion of this authority. He famously predicted from his press conference in the Rose Garden, we'll get sued. He was right. Are there other instances where this use of uh, executive power and this reliance on the National Emergencies Act got challenged so quickly? I'm not aware of any previous instance in which a president's use of statutory emergency power, certainly since the National Emergencies Act modernized it all in 1976, was even subject to a lawsuit. And that's because it was not controversial. The president was doing what Congress wanted him to do with that authority up until now. Is some of this a function of having a Congress that, at least in my experience, and I started working on Capitol Hill in 1987 for, as an intern for Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and I remember then that senators and congressmen, congresspeople of both parties jealously guarded the constitutional powers given to their branch, even above and beyond party. Now it seems you have a Congress that, at least on the politics of it, doesn't jealously guard those powers and prerogatives. Is, is that a factor here or – or is it just is it just this this particular executive? No, it is a factor, and it's part of a broader pattern. Um, uh, 
which people refer to as the the increasing polarization, partisan polarization of the country. As the two parties have gotten more ideologically sorted and the sort of conservative Democrats and liberal and moderate Republicans have disappeared as a species, the ability of Congress to rise above partisanship and uh, act in its own institutional self-interest has waned. And in some ways, this is a the culmination of a structural flaw in the Constitution based on an incorrect premise that the founders had. They did not think we were going to have political parties or factions, as they called them in the late 18th century. They thought that each lawmaker would be a free agent uh, and therefore self-interest in wanting your own power and prestige would lead them to push back against executive overreach, just as the self-interest of the president would lead him or her someday to push back against congressional overreach. And this system of checks and balances would keep things in equilibrium. Obviously, they were wrong right away, even before, you know, George Washington uh, was done being president. The fact, you know, the Federalists and the in the Jeffersonians and so forth were emerging as factions that would work together across institutional lines uh, to try to control government. And that means that, and, and as this has become more and more acute ideologically, it means that the whoever is in the White House, their fellow lawmakers on the Hill do not see themselves as independent and co-equal. They see themselves as subservient in that their interests are aligned. If the president does well, they will be more likely to do what they want to be able to do, starting with get reelected, uh, as, as Republicans saw in the midterm when the president was doing poorly, and so did Republican candidates. And so this means that the you know, this is one of the reasons that checks and balances on the presidency across presidents of both parties in the 20th and now 21st century has been eroding rapidly. In this, in this emergency powers dispute we're seeing now, this will matter in the following way. So Congress in the National Emergencies Act left itself with the ability to turn off an emergency if they thought that the president had declared one under dubious circumstances. And the original idea was that they could do it with a simple majority vote in each chamber. But so that was 1976. And if that was still the rule, this this emergency would be over. But it, the Supreme Court ruled in 1983 that a, a resolution by Congress that is not presented to the president for signature or veto like a bill is cannot have legal effect. So now it requires now the president can override can veto a resolution turning off his emergency. So the House uh, last week controlled by Democrats, easily passed a resolution to turn this off. I suspect that the Senate will pass it as well. Enough Republicans, they only need four, will break party lines, but not many more than four will. And then Trump will veto it, and there will not be enough votes to get to two-thirds in each chamber to override him because Republicans, as we saw in the House vote, are largely standing by their president. And so the president can get away with it, essentially. So speaking about the executive branch and the legislative branch, I want to actually transition to the third branch, which may revisit that very question from 1983. Let's talk about judges. Over the last two years, Trump has nominated and to date the Senate has confirmed, I believe my numbers are correct here, 86 federal judges, Article Three judges, two to the Supreme Court, 31 to the federal circuit courts, the Court of Appeals. And in his eight years, Barack Obama only was only able to get 48 federal circuit judges confirmed by the Senate. Explain the difference. Sure. So Trump's success in getting 
very conservative and also very impressive in terms of their credentials and bona fides judges confirmed to the appeals courts, to say nothing of the two Supreme Court justices, is, I think, a place in his presidency where things are really working the way they're supposed to. I don't mean that in terms of normative uh, approval, but in terms of policy competence. The first two years of his presidency were obviously chaotic in many ways, but not this way. And the judges that he was nominating and appointing with uh, spearheaded by his first White House counsel, Don McGahn, who really deserves the credit for this, were are serious judges. They're the same nom- type of nominees that a Jeb Bush or a Marco Rubio or any other uh, Republican, a normal Republican president would also be proud to put forward. And he's broken all records, as is what you're alluding to, in terms of the numbers of this, and especially compared to Obama. And the reason for that is not that uh, Don McGahn and Trump are more serious about getting judges through than Obama and his White House counsels were, although I do think Obama would put a little bit less priority on this, especially at first, than Trump has. But it's because the rules have changed in the Senate. Uh, so Republicans uh, were blocking Obama up and down votes on Obama's judges systematically. They were famously uh, not going to let him nominate anyone, appoint anyone to the D.C. circuit uh, to fill three vacancies there. And so Democrats uh, in 2013 changed the rules to abolish the filibuster for nominations. And then Obama got a bunch of judges through in late 2013, 2014. And then the, because now finally only an up and, uh, 50, 51 votes was enough to confirm someone. But then Republicans took over the Senate in the 2014 midterm. And they retaliated against the Democrats for having done that by essentially stopping all confirmations. And the uh, you know that's, that most famously happened with Merrick Garland nomination after Justice Scalia died. But it, even before Justice Scalia died, they had uh, McConnell had slammed the door shut on appeals court judgeships. And so almost all the deficit in Obama's numbers relative to previous presidents like Bush and Clinton, who each got about sixty appeals court judges through comes as in those last two years when he just doesn't get anybody through, uh, leaving a lot of vacancies for Trump to fill, by the way. And now, for the first time, we have, well, we had it briefly in, in late 2013, 2014, but now we have, for, re, for the first time under a Republican president, a White House controlled by the same party as the Senate when the rules permit 51-vote confirmations of judges instead of 60-vote confirmations. And they've used that to create this assembly line of rapid confirmations of many, many, many very conservative judges. That that rules change is the explanation for why Trump's numbers are so excellent uh, compared to uh, to Obama's. And I think since Republicans kept the Senate in the um, most recent midterm, those numbers will just continue to balloon because there's not going to be legislation with Democrats now controlling the House. But the Republicans controlling the Senate means they can continue to fill the federal courts, and they will. I remember reading back in August a federal judge in Pennsylvania who was 95 years old and he was in senior status, but he was still there, who had been appointed by President Kennedy huh. in 1962. Now, he was the longest serving judge in federal, in federal judge in U.S. history. We could have, you know, Donald Trump judges for the next 30, 40 years. And with this efficiency, how does that change the nature of the judiciary, um, if at all? It shifts it to the right. It'll be a more conservative judiciary than it would have been had Hillary Clinton won the presidency. Uh, you know, the, but it, but again, I think this is a, 
I want to emphasize that this is not a you know we're we're so used to thinking about the weirdness of Donald Trump's presidencies and the un, the idiosyncratic nature of of what's happening and suddenly we're in a trade war with China because Trump personally you know has a bugaboo about that in a way that another Republican president would not have done what he's done. And this is just not one of those things that any Republican president would be taking advantage of a Republican Senate to go to the Federalist Society and take its ranks and put them on the bench with these very same people. Uh, This is a normal uh, aspect of these abnormal times. So switching gears here, uh, back in June of last year, you wrote a story in The Times explaining the legality and ethics of publishing confidential and classified information. Now, journalists have been publishing confidential information since the beginning of time, since there have been journalists. Why did the Times feel the need to explain that process at that time? You know, we have a feature in which we've been trying to sort of open the kimono a little bit, and it's called Times Insider, where we, you know, who, how did we get that story? Or, you know, trying to help people understand who it is that's doing things, how decisions are made, what it took to go, you know, into a war zone and come out with those photographs. And I think that that, this was part of that series. And so some of it was just, we're trying to do that now. And what's another topic to be addressed? But it is a recurring question, obviously, and especially since 9-11, when there's been a lot of secrets that have come to light over time about things, you know, starting with torture and warrantless wiretapping and CIA black sites and moving on to this to this day, where people do have questions about like, what are the rules, who decides, what are the what are the standards you use to decide, is it legal? And we, uh, so I think we were trying to explain, you know, what happens. I could do that here if you want briefly. What are the rules and who decides? Right. Well, because uh, we live in a country that has a First Amendment, the newspaper or the the media decides if they if they come into possession of information, the government would rather keep secret. At least the understanding has been, and I'll get back to that caveat in one second, that uh, the government can't stop them from publishing that information. That doesn't mean the government can't ask them not to publish it, though. And so it is the case that from periodically the Times comes into uh, information uh, that is of sensitive national security information that we think is newsworthy. And the process is that as part of our normal way of doing business, we are going to go eventually to the, through the front door to the agency involved and say, we're preparing to write about this. Would you like to engage? Would you like to talk about it? And sometimes the agency might say, could you please not publish that? And at that point, the decision is just a serious thing for the Times to suppress information that we think is newsworthy. So I, as the reporter or any other reporter, am not going to make that decision. And the usually, if I'm going through the front door, I'd be talking to the spokesman for that agency. And that spokesman can't make the ask either. It's such a serious thing that we want it to be the real deal. And so if the CIA director is not willing to get on the phone and call my boss's boss, Dean Backe, the editor of the Times, or maybe even Arthur Sulzberger, the publisher of the Times, and the, then we're not going to entertain such a request. And that creates a sort of, you know, a filter to, to screen out routine. You shouldn't do that. And so they only do it when they're serious. And I've been then in converse, in the room when these conversations are happening. But at that point, it's I'm not the decider and I'm not the talker. And so Dean or whoever the, seri- the, the senior editor is will say, well, why do you want us to not publish this? And what they're listening for is, is there a serious, concrete, articulable threat or risk? 
you know, someone will get killed and it's who's going to get killed. This person will get killed. You know, there's going to be a raid tomorrow. And if you publish that that raid is happening, they will know and the gun will be pointed at the door when the, you know, the agents knock on it. That's a really good reason not to publish something or to delay publication of something. On the other hand, if it's vague and inchoate and, well, we just don't like to advertise that we try to wiretap terrorists because that just reminds them that they ought to take precautions. And so the sources and methods is we'd really, you don't publish a story that says we try to wiretap terrorists, even though obviously they know we try to wiretap terrorists. So we just don't want them to remind them of that. I think that uh, Dean or someone in his position at some other newspaper would probably say, we hear you, we consider, we've consider, we considered it, but we're going to go ahead with this. And then very often, it's not quite, uh, just the last thought, it's not quite black and white in terms of publish or don't publish. It may be Here's 30 things we're planning to publish for this story, and they would rather we didn't publish any of them, but really it's just number 17. That's the one we have concerns about. Can you please not publish that? And here's why. And we can say, well, you know what? There's, there's something to that, and the, the reader still understands the policy significance of this with or without fact number 17. We might hold that back. So that's how those conversations go. The caveat I mentioned at the very beginning was we have learned now that WikiLeaks and Julian Assange have been indicted under seal in the Eastern District of Virginia. Uh, this happened in 2017, we think, not uh, so, uh, uh, and we don't know what it's for. And but it, it looks increasingly like it's not related to the Russia 2016 special counsel investigation, which suggests that it's related to the publication of classified information in the old way that WikiLeaks used to do it or has done it. The the, the Chelsea Manning leaks, the Vault Seven stuff, and if that's r- so it's possible, and we'll, if Assange ever comes out of that embassy and gets extradited here, we'll see that the government has crossed a Rubicon and is now trying to criminalize the publication of information that it has deemed secret, raising you know profound First Amendment issues. Or maybe it has it's so specialized and, and distinguishable from what the New York Times does that whatever that charge is related to doesn't affect what normal mainstream media does. But that's a, a thing to watch. You very articulately describe that process by which journalists and government officials have that conversation. And um, you said you've been in the room. I've, when I worked for President Bush in the first two years of his, his administration, I was in the room for several of those, um, in, including major stories like rendition and other things. And that's one of the ones that we asked to not have published that was published. But there were others in terms of military operations. And like you said, when it's imminent loss of life, when we could point to somebody, I remember Defense Department uh, situations, CIA situations, and that requires a little bit of at least some level of a degree of trust between the government official and those journalists, those editors, those publishers, that the information that we're telling you now of the reason why we're giving you the information that you asking you not to publish is accurate. And has that broken down some in in the current administration? It's absolutely essential that those conversations be done in good faith. And uh, without regard to the current administration, I think it's public now. I mean, I can't really talk about things that aren't public. But it's public now that when the Times published the warrantless wiretapping NSA story in December of 2005, it had actually had that story in 2004 ahead of the election. And the White House had asked senior New York Times management to not publish it. And part of the representations they made in 2004, this is the Bush administration now, not the Trump administration, was that there was no controversy internally. Everyone agreed it was legal and it was, you know, helping save lives, et cetera. 
and then come to find out in, that that was a lie. And then, in fact, the entire senior Justice Department hierarchy, including the attorney general, deputy attorney general, and FBI director, had almost resigned in March of 2004 in a dispute over the legality of aspects of that program. And the learning of that in 2005 was a factor, I believe. I wasn't there at the time, but from having written, chronicled it for my books uh, later, was a significant factor in The Times deciding to publish in 2005 what it had decided not to publish in 2004. It had decided that the government's representations about that program could not be trusted. And uh, so you, if you are a government decision maker and you're having one of these conversations with reporters, your credibility is extraordinarily important and you don't want to get caught out lying about it because the next time you will be discounted. Let's talk about your book, Power Wars, The Relentless Rise of Presidential Authority and Secrecy. The book was first published in 2015, and the subject has only become more important since then and more relevant, in some cases more dangerous. You've systematically revised and updated it to reflect subsequent events and and revelations. In the recent paperback edition, you set the following scene. At noon on Friday, January 20th, 2017, as Barack Obama looked on in his final moment in power, Donald Trump placed his hand upon a Bible and swore that he would, to the best of his ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Then, as the rain began to fall over the Washington Mall, the newly inaugurated 45th president of the United States vowed to, quote, unite the civilized world against radical Islamic terrorism, which we will eradicate completely from the face of the earth, quote, and announced, quote, from this day forward, it's going to be America first, end quote. This book explores how the United States got here. Let's start there. How did we get here? (laughs) Well, what I'm getting at there, of course, is tying what happened in the Obama administration to the fact that Donald Trump ended up inheriting a very powerful presidency, which included a variety of powers that Obama had in in turn inherited largely from Bush. And rather than relinquishing them, he had sanded off the rough edges and put them on a firmer legal basis and kept them available and curated them as tools that he thought the president ought to have as a matter of prudence, even if the president did not, you, you know, was careful to use them within norms and not recklessly and so forth. The premise, which is largely the topic of this book, it's, you know, how is it that with Barack Obama came in and defying the expectations created by his campaign rhetoric in 2008 that he, uh, on both by both supporters and critics of the Bush administration that he was going to end the war on terror and shut down um, uh, so much of what Bush and Cheney had put in place after 9-11, he ended up being accused of acting like Bush, of keeping powers available and even in some ways expanding them. So, you know, so he, even though he tried but failed to close Guantanamo, he decided not to repudiate military commissions, but to keep using them. He decided not to repudiate uh, holding people, terrorism suspects, without trial. His plan for closing Guantanamo is to keep holding those same people somewhere else without trial. And in some ways, he went further. He used expanded the drone campaign in places like Yemen and tribal Pakistan. He did something Bush never did, which was a, a kill an American citizen, Anwar Alaki, w- without a trial. And uh, I think in many ways, people thought that his vow to be the most transparent president ever uh, fell short over time. 
and to say nothing of various other sort of norm erosions later in his presidency outside of the national security context as he was dealing with a recalcitrant Republican Congress on matters like immigration and the Iran deal, which I guess is national security. So, But the premise of, of the evolution of Obama and his sort of measured, prudent, we should really not take this tool off the table because we might need it. It would be irresponsible to. Al-Qaeda remains a threat. So let's, it, so let's keep it available but put constraints on it and use it sparingly if at all but not – was that the presidency would be occupied by himself at first and then a successor who was a president with, uh, within normal parameters, which is to say Hillary Clinton or – Mitt Romney or John McCain, his his defeated Republican uh, opponents. Um, and instead, he found himself handing off all these powers that he had curated and preserved and bolstered in certain respects to a man who's not known for respecting norms and limits and did not seem particularly concerned about things like human rights violations, civil liberties at home, civilian casualties abroad. Uh, and that raised the stakes, is my argument, in understanding how it was that the, a president that many people thought was going to change the war on terror really just kind of, or end it, uh, really just kind of right-sized it and kept it around and, 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 and kept the forever war going, maybe not because he wanted to, but because the world in which we live, in which he found himself operating, necessitated it. So we talk about kind of beginning the race mid-step, so to speak, transitioning power from President Obama to President Trump. But if we take a step back for a moment and just think about national security generally or even security and why we have it and, and really the, the idea of the social contract, you know, we, we enter, we go from the state of nature to the state of order and have government in part so that we can be protected, so that we can have security and and feel that as a country and, and as a people. President Obama as a constitutional scholar and as, as, a, as a professor obviously had his own beliefs on that. Do you think that Donald Trump approaches national security with with a belief of why we why we have it to begin with? Do you think he has his own thoughts and feelings about the social contract and about why we have security to begin with? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I haven't seen any evidence that Trump doesn't want to defend the country. Uh, he certainly has a different vision of it. And, you know, and, and recently the – so part of that vision is a lack of concern about blowback and the image of the United States abroad. And, you know, Obama ring, wrung his hands and even Bush to some extent about uh, the ways in which Guantanamo, for example, became a recruiting symbol and uh, in which perceptions of American overreach or civilian casualties from bombings and stuff could – you know, recruit new terrorists to the anti-American cause faster than we could kill the old ones. Trump does not seem to care about those kinds of optics at all. He wants the a, a strong, you know, bombs away approach. At the same, and 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 so some of his early moves were to unleash the military and the CIA from from some of the uh, constraints that Obama had imposed on them, especially for. Uh, drone strikes and other airstrikes outside of ordinary hot battlefields in places like Yemen, places like Somalia, places like tribal Pakistan. It's, you make your decision, bombs away, and we're not, you're not going to have to go through these high-level deliberations and so forth. And I think that it, it took a little while, but like right now we're seeing 
tremendous amounts of bombing in Somalia. No one's paying any attention to it because, but you know, just this week, well, last week, by the time this airs, there was three strikes. One of them killed 35 people. Another killed 20 people. Another killed several people, but also blew up some vehicles. You know, we're we're waging war there in a way that has become was enabled by Trump taking the the leash off the military uh, in 2017. At the same time, though, Trump is trying to get out of Syria, and he clearly would like to get out of Afghanistan or wind things down. He's He's got this sort of isolationist, let other people handle it, why are we deployed around the world attitude. And it's been interesting to watch this unfold where the sort of ordinary national security advisors, even people like John Bolton, who's his national security advisor now, is a very aggressive um, let's use American force abroad, you know, big backer of the Iraq war back in the day and so forth, figure, and Jim Mattis, who resigned over the from the Secretary of Defense over the Syria pullout order, uh, are telling him, don't do it. This is going to unleash chaos. You know, ISIS isn't dead yet, and this will let them regenerate. And, uh, you know, these governments, these fledgling governments will collapse, and we've got to stay. And these are the same arguments that entrapped and uh, uh, Barack Obama, who also wanted to end the forever war and clearly, you know, wanted to get out of Iraq and wanted to wind down Afghanistan and declare the war over and couldn't because the world wasn't cooperating and things were still dangerous. And he didn't after the, you know, the rise of ISIS, in part because the U.S. did pull out of Iraq, it kept him from doing the same thing in Afghanistan because he heard these arguments and listened to them and felt he had no choice. And as a matter of prudence. It's possible that uh, one of the ironies of all this is it's, it's possible that a president like Trump, who at the end of the day has been accused of recklessness and does seem to think he knows better than everyone else and uh, is sort of maybe uh, decides which facts he wants to believe and which facts he doesn't want to believe based on what's expedient for what he wants to do rather than deciding what he wants to do based on the facts as they are. It may be that a president like that is the only kind of president that actually will be capable of pulling the U.S. out of this ever-expanding war on forever war on terror everywhere where there's a, a Muslim country with poor governance and, and terror groups that are running around that may or may not be capable of causing harm to us here because he doesn't care if people say people will die tomorrow if you pull out today. It, it may be that he's the only person who can 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 keep the United States from being at war in places like Somalia and Pakistan and 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 Yemen for the next 100 years for better or worse. So, that's that's you know, we'll see. We're only 2 years into this, but it's fascinating uh in a in a dynamic that doesn't often get remarked upon in that respect. One of the things I was struck by listening to your book was when I first started in politics and you start first started covering government and all these issues, there was always a discussion about the War Powers Act. It was in 1991 when President, first President Bush went into Iraq and when President Clinton took certain actions in the 1990s, there was a, I don't hear that anymore. I don't hear that ever. And I, it was 9-11 that demarcation point and we just stopped talking about that? Um, is it more of our discussion about Congress ceding power to the executive or is it just something that is inoperative now in a 21st century world that Article 2 power is has to operate differently than than it was envisioned. So for the listeners who may not be familiar with it, the War Powers Resolution, sometimes called the War Powers Act, uh, was passed 
over Richard Nixon's veto by Congress at the tail end of the Vietnam War. And the idea of it was Congress was trying to reclaim its voice in deciding when and where the United States would go to war. And the most important provision of it is that if the U.S. has deployed forces into hostilities or the threat of hostilities abroad and Congress has not authorized that deployment, the, the law requires the president to bring them home to terminate that deployment within after 60 days have passed. This has not been a constraint on the forever war. I'm talking about the 9-11 war because Congress authorized the use of military force against al-Qaeda a couple of weeks after a week after uh, 9-11. And the executive branch under Bush and then Obama and now Trump have stretched that authorization. They've applied it to groups that are grew up after the original al-Qaeda, after 9-11, but became affiliated with it or offshoots. So al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, in Yemen, and uh, al-Shabaab in Somalia, most famously, of course, uh, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, which started as al-Qaeda's Iraq affiliate during the Iraq War and then broke with al-Qaeda. But uh, um, the government took the position under Obama that a split between two groups, one group into two groups, and one keeps the brand name and the other gets a new name, doesn't mean that the pre-existing authority to wage war against both factions disappears just because one renamed itself. That was controversial, but the controversy seems to have faded. So the, the the fact that they can keep pointing to that 2001 authorization for use of military force is why the War's Power Resolution has not been a, a constraint against this um, metastasis of the 9-11 war. I would disagree that it hasn't uh, been a hot issue since Bush, though, in other respects. It was a very important issue in 2011 when uh, Obama took the unilaterally, that is, without Congress, took the United States into NATO's air war over Libya, which lasted much longer than they thought it was going to. And Obama ended up taking a very... Um, so on the, to keep the war going on the 61st day, made a very disputed claim that the law didn't apply to an air war like that, echoing something Clinton had done in Kosovo, by the way. And so that that's seen, I think, among executive power scholars as one of Obama's overreaches or, you know, places where he pushed on norms. And the uh, most recently, Congress has been trying to push the United States out of supporting the Saudi government and the United Emirates in its war against the Houthi rebels in Yemen uh, by trying to invoke the War Powers Resolution to say this that our support to them, our targeting assistance, our munitions and refueling assistance amounts to being deployed into hostilities, even though we ourselves are not dropping bombs and we ought to stop it. Uh, it won't work. They don't have the votes to override a veto, even if it got through the Senate and so forth, But uh, which I think it did actually late last year. Um, but um, it's it's a place where the, the word is on people's lips again. It's just – but basically the the takeaway is that in one way or another, presidents have found ways to continue to deploy forces into combat-type situations since 1974 on their own. And the War Powers Resolution has been a failure as an attempt to rein in that practice, which was sort of a hallmark of the imperial presidency era post-World War II, dating back to Truman going into Korea by himself. 
One of the things that Congress did do, and you mentioned this earlier, the the legal linchpin for the modern war on terror and and many of the things that that the country has done in that vein uh, is the authorization for the use of military force. And you you spoke about it earlier that it keeps getting applied and and keeps getting extended. Do you think maybe we're we're reaching the end of the road for the application of the AUMF because – for one, it was originally passed as applied to al-Qaeda, and it hasn't, to my knowledge, been applied by the government, um, certainly in any court, to the Islamic State. And I think the evidence for that most recently is that uh, the U.S. government was detaining a, an American citizen abroad, and the question of whether the AUMF applied to the Islamic State was going to come up uh, in the validity of that detention, um, but it kind of resolved itself uh, before the D.C. Circuit in this case was able to answer that question. Do you think we're reaching the end of the road in in the application of the AUMF and in those expanded powers under that authorization? Yes and no. It has been the case for, for some years now, various people in Congress, perhaps most notably Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia, have been arguing that the the AUMF the, of, uh, of 2001 has been stretched too far. You know, it wasn't even actually against al-Qaeda. It was against the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks who are, for the most part, dead, except for Zawahiri um, and the, the few guys down at Guantanamo who maybe someday will get a trial. But there's been tremendous difficulty in Congress in the question of, well, if we reject the executive branch's stretching of it to apply to what it's doing today, what do we replace it with? And the problem is that some people don't want to place any new limits on the president's or the executive branch's authority. They will not stand for taking power away from from the executive branch to do what it's currently doing in places like Somalia and Yemen and so forth. That's the sort of like the, the Senator Tom Cotton point of view. And other people, especially Democrats, don't want to write a new blank check for a forever war. So they say, well, let's let's replace it with an AUMF that will only last three years and then will sunset or that will not permit uh, you know, the president to use ground forces in some new place that he's not used without first coming to Congress. And so, and so they're not going to vote for – so there's a faction that's not going to vote for a blank check. There's a faction that will only vote for a blank check and there's not – and it's not clear that at that point there's any purpose – that anything can get through Congress that w- would command – uh, majority support or or filibuster-proof support. And that's why we were sort of paralyzed and this increasingly tattered legal authority remains the de facto basis of what the U.S. government through pre- three presidents now is, is doing. You're right that the executive branch is desperate to keep this from coming before a judge. And in particular, uh, the, the stretching of it to ISIS, which is not part of al-Qaeda anymore and in fact is at war with al-Qaeda, uh, was a uh, is, is something they don't they don't want to test and they don't that, that's why they, they haven't brought any ISIS detainees to Guantanamo despite all of Trump's saber rattling about how he's going to fill it up back up with bad guys bad dudes he's not brought a single prisoner there and that is because uh, that would immediately give someone standing to challenge the theory that the UMF authorizes the war against ISIS and if a judge were to rule no that's a step too far that wouldn't just result in there not being authority to hold that particular person, it would mean that the entire war effort against ISIS was has no legal basis and it would just mess things up from top to bottom. And that's why they've been also in the case that you mentioned, this US, this dual U.S.-Saudi citizen that was uh, held for a year, they were desperate to get rid of him before they had to test whether they had legal authority to uh, hold him in the first place, which is why he's now a free man in Bahrain. 
Sounds like a good topic for the next book, too. Charlie Savage, thank you. We can listen to your book, Power Wars, The Relentless Rise of Presidential Authority and Secrecy on Audible. It's a great listen. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Words Matter will be right back here next week. We hope you will be, too. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.